Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Matthew 5:44-46. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? One of the greatest sayings of Jesus needs to be retranslated. For 2,000 years, the followers of Jesus have tried to hear it, and to live it out, but it's not working. Perhaps if we retranslated it, we might hear its essence in a different way. What is this saying? Love your enemies. What's the new translation? Have no enemies. Love your enemies becomes have no enemies. And that makes a significant difference. Because, again, just hearing those words, love your enemies, we still have enemies. For the last 2,000 years, Christians have enemies, both collectively and individually. And we shouldn't be surprised, because part of the evolutionary process of Homo sapiens was survival by identifying your enemy. And especially this became relevant in the area of religion. When religion first began to bud, there were those who began to teach that belonging to that religion, practicing that religion, being a member of that religion, meant that you had an enemy, those that were outside of the religion. Perhaps you've heard the word remnant. Many religions see themselves as the remnant, the special ones that their God has elected, that their God has chosen, and everyone else is on the outside. We find glimpses of this ancient idea in religion in the Jewish scripture, our Protestant Old Testament. As you begin to read and you look at some of the earliest writings, this is so prevalent. You either belong in your family, in your tribe, in your nation, or you're the outsider. When you look at the laws that are there, you were not allowed to marry someone who was not a part of your group. If you were an Israelite, you could not marry a non-Israelite. And if you did, it was either because of political reasons and you were high enough in stature to get away with it, or you were in trouble. So they had this way of distinguishing between the insiders and the outsiders. The members and those that were outside, they were the enemy. But even within their own community, we begin to see this take place, this shift For example, if you broke one of the laws, if you made yourself impure by doing something, 
and you continue to do that, and you would not take the measures that were needed to regain your purity? Well, they would either try to realign you, or they would expel you. But what's interesting is, as you read the Bible, and as you follow this period of time that develops over this, these different writings, you begin to see somewhat of a shift. This dichotomy between either belonging or not belonging, between being a member or being an enemy, begins to get a little fuzzy in the middle. Some of the prophets will occasionally talk about the outsiders having the opportunity to actually somewhat belong, only if they convert. Even in the New Testament, we still see remnants of this idea of those who do not believe the way that you believe are the enemy. There's a letter in the New Testament, one that is probably not very popular and is not read very often. It's one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. It's called Jude. If you have the chance, find your Bible and read Jude. It's only one chapter. And as you read it, you begin to realize that the writer is speaking out against these people that are on the outside. It's almost as if he's having this tirade. For those on the outside, he calls them intruders. They are ungodly people. He goes on to describe them as, you ready for this, irrational animals. And then he pulls out all the stops and he calls them autumn trees without fruit. Now that doesn't mean much for us today, but to them in the past, these are people that were seen as being unproductive to society. So this idea while it's found in the book of Jude and other places in the New Testament, it's also starting to be countered in other places in the New Testament. You think about Paul. Paul, I think in this core, was a little bit of a rebel. And when he convinced himself of something, he was all in. And so when Paul began to think about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, he recalled some of those passages that we find in our Old Testament, in the prophets. And I imagine he was aware of Isaiah 66, where it talked about other people becoming a part of the Jewish community. But Paul doesn't say they have to convert. Paul doesn't say that they have to be circumcised or they have to change their diet. And Paul says the outsiders can be outsiders and still be a follower of Jesus. Another way of saying it is a Gentile is accepted as a Gentile. And so even Paul slowly begins to make this shift from seeing this either in or out, a member or an enemy, and begins to actually see that we are all belonging and all one. But if we follow the growth and the evolution of Homo sapiens, this phenomena that occurred in religion, it begins to happen in politics. According to a recent research and a poll that was taken, we right now in 2020 are experiencing 
the most divisive time in politics. Republicans and Democrats are all at an all-time divisiveness between them. This, this study tracking these ideas of this divisiveness started in the 1980s. And slowly it has begun to ramp up. But what's interesting is you go back into the 1930s. In the 1930s, there is still division. But what they were divided about back then was different. One of the main things they were divided about in politics was the role of government. How big of a government should we have? How active should it be in our lives? And these discussions, they were more complex. They, took a, they were complicated. They took time to reflect upon and to, to think about. They weren't just this gut reaction, I don't like that. But you actually had to spend time considering the possibilities. And it allowed for compromise. But recently, the shift has taken place Instead, now politics tends to be focused on those things which spur within us this emotional, this gut feeling that it's right, it's wrong. For example, around race, around sexual identity, and other subjects. There's more of this rootedness that I just don't believe this feels right. And so we begin to see the other person the other political party as an enemy. So what hope do we have? I mean, if we're really honest about this, this is a part of being a human being. But it's a part that can also be held in check. It doesn't need to be given free reign. We can pull it back. We can tone it down. So what can we do as we begin to move into a new year, a new advent, a new coming of a new year, what steps can we do to have a sense of hope that while we may not be able to completely get rid of this divisiveness, at least we can make it more palatable? I offer you three, suggest three suggestions for your consideration. Number one, understand that having an enemy meets an emotional need. Let me say it one more time. Having an enemy fulfills an emotional need within you. When you recognize that, you can think about alternative ways of meeting that need. So what are some of these needs that are met when we can identify either a group of people or an individual as our enemy. If you look, you're going to see right now pop up on your screen these four. There's a lot more of them. But these are the four that I would like to briefly highlight. Number one, having an enemy gives you someone to blame. You don't have to take responsibility. It's someone else's fault. Number two, having an enemy simplifies this whole idea of cause behind complex problems. If you have this complex problem and you think about it, it can confuse you. 
But if you can blame that problem on an enemy, then all of a sudden it becomes quite simple. It doesn't need to be figured out. Blame it on the Republicans. Blame it on the Democrats. Blame it on those who live in the Midwest. Blame it on those who live on the coasts. And it's when you can do that, your complex problem all of a sudden becomes controllable. And instead of feeling uncertain, now you have control because you know where the problem is. The problem isn't inside of you, it's your enemies. Number three, it creates a sense of unity with others. This is the one I found quite interesting. When it comes to this sense of being united to others, when a group of people, when they were studied, when they found out that they had a common enemy, it actually enhanced their friendship. Perhaps this sounds familiar. You're out to eat with some friends, with some family members. And these family members or friends, they, they see life from your worldview in the same way. And then all of a sudden, you begin to talk about the enemy. You would never verbalize that word, but it's understood. And all of a sudden, the, the critiques and the criticism and the judgments begin. And all of a sudden, you feel connected with each other because you're all upset and feel this fever pitch within you against the enemy. And then last of all, it boosts your self-esteem. Because you look at your enemy, who you despise, and then you realize, wow, I must not be that bad because I'm not like them. And so that gives you a greater sense of self-esteem. So again, one of the steps we can take to bring a sense of hope is to realize that part of being a human being is to naturally look for someone to have as your enemy because it fulfills these needs inside of us. But when you recognize that, then you can take steps to find other ways to fulfill those needs. So that's number one. The second thing we can do is recognize that we are truly connected with each other. And we are connected in the sense that we all have the same emotions. You feel anger, your enemy feels anger. You feel happiness and joy, that's the same emotion that your enemy has. You have desires, you, you need to eat. You have a desire when you get hungry to eat. You have a desire for shelter, you have a desire for safety. Your worst enemy has that same desire that you have. And they also, your enemy, has aspirations. They have dreams. They think about the possibilities. They want their life to matter. So if we can just stop and realize that in our core we have these common commonalities that exist, that's a way of toning back these feelings that we can feel toward another individual of seeing them as the other, as the enemy. But it's not only feeling and realizing we have that connection, but it's also understanding that we are dependent upon each other. 
whatever political party you are. Perhaps you're a Democrat, and you look at the Republicans, and you say, I I can't understand them. Or you're a Republican, and you look at the Democrats, and you say, I can't understand why they are not supporting our president. But this person who is different than you, maybe they're a farmer in the Midwest. Maybe they're a tech worker on the West Coast. Do you realize that you are dependent upon them? Their work, their labor, produce goods that eventually you may consume? So when you stop and think about that, your enemy is actually someone that you need. And again, it just tones it down. But the third reason, the third way that we can have hope moving into the future is by retranslating one of these great sayings by Jesus, changing it from love your enemies to have no enemies. Now, for that to make sense, we first have to understand the difference between an enemy and an adversary. One writer captures this in the following words. An adversary is someone you wish to defeat. In a temporary contest, such as a legal battle or a form of competition. To wish to trounce an opponent in an election is entirely legitimate. On the other hand, An enemy is someone to be destroyed permanently. You see, adversaries can be won over, turned into allies, but enemies cannot. A compromise with an adversary is acceptable, even praiseworthy. On the other hand, with an enemy, a compromise spells defeat an unacceptable concession, a betrayal. So when we take that saying of Jesus and retranslate it to have no enemies, it doesn't mean that we can't have adversaries. But it does mean that we have no enemy. So how is that possible? Because if you love and you love everyone, then you will have no enemy. When Jesus says, love your enemies, by loving them, they are no longer your enemy. So perhaps they are basically the same thing, but just tweaking the wording might help us be a little bit more aware of that instinctual desire to have an enemy, and we might be more aware that, ooh, I'm looking at these group of, this group of people or these individuals or this person as an enemy. I don't need that. And I believe that Jesus, when he said this, he based it on an understanding that God was love. Now again, think about that. If God is love, then God loves everybody. 
Therefore, God has no enemies. So if you have an enemy, they're not God's enemy. If you believe that God is love. So is it even possible to have no enemies? Adversaries, yes. Enemies, is that possible to have no enemies? My answer is yes. And we are seeing it all the time around us. Think about the physician who works in the emergency room. If an individual that he despises, that he sees as being an enemy, comes into his hospital, his emergency room, he took an oath to do no harm. He will treat him. He will treat her. If he has to go and become the physician at a hospital, I mean, at a, at a prison, and he sees someone who's done something despicable, he can't see an enemy. He has to see a person. Now, he may see an adversary, but he doesn't see an enemy because he has to care and love that person. Think about teachers. For those of you that are teachers, you know there are students that you just don't like. They greet you the wrong way. But they're not your enemy because your job is to teach them. Your job is to care for them, to keep them safe. That is love. And if you love, you will have no enemy. I want to offer you a challenge. They say it takes 30 days to develop a habit. My challenge to you is someplace in your home, perhaps you make it your home, your home screen on one of your iPads or your iPhone or a cellular device, whatever it is, with three words on it, have no enemy. Take a sticky note, have no enemy. Put it on the mirror in your bathroom so you see it for 30 days straight. Have no enemy. Perhaps as we transition into 2021, a new year, the advent that is coming, perhaps we will, in a greater way, fulfill Jesus' dream. To love your enemies, which equals have no enemies. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at BeatitudesChurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.